morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new, uh, glad to have you with us. If you're not new, glad to have you with us. Um, Always glad to have uh, everyone who wants to join and be a part of the church gathered. Um, If you are new, uh, just to give you a heads up, uh, we last week dove into a new series entitled the story. And so you're on the front end of that, which is good news. I'm going to give a brief recap even of last week, this morning. Um, If you know of people who uh, would fall under the category of uh, maybe the unchurched or perhaps even the de-churched, they have a history with the local church, but maybe you're jaded toward the church. And um, and even people who don't profess to know and love Jesus, uh, this would be one of those great series to just pass on the link to and say, hey, I, I know you may not, you know, anytime in the near future come and step into uh, the context of the church gathered on a Sunday morning, but um, I think this would be helpful just to listen to, to get an idea of the, the broad bro, uh, brushstroke version of the Bible and what the Bible teaches, what the Bible is ultimately about. So I'd encourage you to pass that on to people and uh, who knows what God might do by way of uh, them listening in from afar. Um, they may join us at some point along the way as a result of that. Uh, we're talking about a story, and we will be over the course of the next couple months, that is big enough to, to make sense of our lives, to answer our questions, to explain both the, the beauty and the brokenness of the world that we live in, along with our very lives. Um, a, a story that's big enough to make sense of our desires, of our dreams, of our disappointments, and ultimately a story that's big enough to give us hope in the midst of all of that. It's a story, I mentioned this last week, that is primarily not about you and me, but about God ultimately, and that's good news. It's about the God who has always existed and always will exist. It's about the God who created all things and who, by the word of his power, sustains all things. That though this story is not primarily about us, it's a story that affects and shapes our story in in every way. It's a story with four main acts, and we're going to talk about these over the course of the next couple months. The act of creation as the the curtain opens, and then it closes and opens again on the act of the fall of man. And it closes and opens again on the act of redemption, God's work of redemption uh, amongst humanity. And it closes and opens again with the act of the restoration of all things which is to come in the end. And so we invite you into this divine drama that we're going to look at over the course of the next couple of months. And my hope is that as we work our way through this series that you find your place in God's divine drama. Um, As a help to you, uh, we've created these banners in the hopes that uh, if you come in and you view the Bible currently as just a bunch of stories haphazardly pieced together, or maybe primarily as a book of rules or a book of heroes, plural, that uh, in a matter of minutes you can engage these banners before or after the service and get uh, a good idea of uh, the sweeping story of redemptive history from beginning to end, and that even your kids, as they come in after the service and run laps, might just stop and actually uh, look up and read these banners and, and get a cohesive understanding of the scriptures. So use that um, as a helpmate to you. We'll actually be on banner one for the next two weeks, this morning and next week, as we talk about the story of creation. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter one. That's where we'll be this morning. 
Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can use one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you for free. We're happy for you to explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. I said this last week and I'll say it again. There's no easier opportunity to find the passage of Scripture than what you will have this morning. Just go past the table of contents, very next page. First chapter of the Bible, first verse of the Bible, that's where we're going to jump in this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, even the most comatose Christian has a, a, a somewhat of an understanding of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, most of us in this room have read this chapter of the Bible somewhere along the way. And, and the danger there is that uh, we become inoculated to the beauty and the wonder that is found in such a story of creation. So I pray this morning that you would uh, give us fresh eyes to see uh, as you set the stage for this divine drama to play out. God, help us to, um, to see the beauty and the wonder of your work of creation. Captivate our hearts this morning, God. Help us not to be enamored ultimately with the creation itself, but rather with the one who is capable of making all of these things. God, we pray this uh, by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, last week, I argued that before you jump into the story, it's really helpful to know something about the author, that um, the author's experiences help to shape the story. The author's worldview helps to shape the story in some sense. And so it's a really healthy practice, if you're going to read a book, to flip over to the back side of the book, to the back of the dust cover, and to read the little about the author snippet. And so that's what we did last week. We took a look at the author himself, and I argued that there are some things that we really need to know about the author in order to engage his story. And so as a summary of last week, this is what I said. I said, uh, number one, God is absolute. He has no beginning or end. Nothing brought him into being. He always was. He's not bound by space and time. He created space and time. God is self-existent and self-sufficient. Uh, he needs nothing. He's dependent upon no one. He's dependent upon nothing. He didn't create you and I out of a, a lack uh, because he was in need of anything. And that changes our understanding of the story completely, right? If you believe that God created you out of his good pleasure, it gives you a very different perspective on the story than if you believe that God created you out of a sense of loneliness or need. The author didn't create the characters out of a sense of need. He wasn't lonely in the beginning. In fact, there was an intra-Trinitarian love taking place between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, from eternity past. He's never been dependent upon you or I as the characters in his story. Number two, God is personal. He's not an impersonal force. We looked at this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. God speaks. God sees. These are activities associated with personal beings. You might go, why should we care about that? What does it matter that God is a personal being rather than an impersonal force? Well, it's a huge deal because if it was the other way around, then the impersonal came before the personal. And what that means is that you and I are simply the accidental product of time, matter, motion, and chance. Which means that this story has no meaning whatsoever that you and I are a part of. If our existence is an accident, 
then why should we trust human rationality anymore when everything uh, originates with the irrational? Why should we see anything as meaningful anymore when everything is a product of chance? Why should we live according to any sort of moral code when morality will go unrewarded in the end? Without God, anything goes. You can't point the finger at Hitler or the terrorists involved in 9-11. With God, we're not a part of a meaningless story. Beauty is the result of the brushstroke of an eternal artist. Morality finds its foundation in an eternal moral being. There's purpose in you and I being a part of this divine drama if it begins with the personal. And it does according to the scriptures. Number three, God is creator. On the one hand, he is distinct from his creation. He is the creator and we are the created. We will never lose our creatureliness and God will never lose his deity. Even in taking on human flesh, he added humanity to his deity. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. That there's freedom in knowing that there's only one creator and you're not him and neither am I. There's freedom in no longer trying to do God's job for him and acknowledging that you can't do God's job for him. There's comfort in knowing that he's authoring the story himself, that he's not blindsided by some alteration of the script unbeknownst to him. On the other hand, not only is God distinct from his creation, he's heavily involved in his creation, so much so that he did take on flesh and stepped into the very script himself. The author became a character. That's crazy. He not only wants to know us, but to be known by us. That you can experience the joy of knowing the God of the universe and being known by that same God. And lastly, we took a look last week at the fact that God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. All participated in the creation process and all have their hand in the work of redemption. And what that means is that when we say that Jesus is the hero of all of Scripture, we mean it. That Jesus most certainly participated in the act of creation. Going back to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. But not only do we see Jesus as creator from the very beginning, we see him as redeemer from the very beginning. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and Revelation 13, 8 make that case. Those verses tell us that Before time began, God gave us his grace in Christ Jesus. Before the clock of human history started ticking, Jesus had your salvation in mind. If that's perplexing, go back and listen to last week's sermon. I'm not going to attempt to argue that again this week, but I argue for it there. That when we say that Jesus is the hero of all of Scripture, we're not just throwing out some trite phrase that we use haphazardly. We're not just looking for some open door to wedge the gospel into our gatherings Every week, it's true that before Genesis 1-1 and long after Revelation 22, verse 21, and everything in between, Jesus was, is, and forever will be the hero of human history. So now, this week, we have to consider the setting of the story, creation itself. It's like the first five minutes of a good movie where the stage is set. You begin to figure out this is the city where this story is going to take place or the part of the world. Now we get to see God setting his stage to invite us in to this very story. And there are some things that we need to know this morning as we jump in. And so I want to hit rewind and come back to verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. We looked at those last week, but... We need to look at those, again, from the vantage point of God setting the stage. Verses 1 and 2, take a look with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, we talked about this last week. In the beginning, God. You weren't there. I wasn't there. God is the only eternal being in the universe. The personal God of the universe came before impersonal structures, time, matter, motion, and chance. And what that means is that God created the universe uh, without the use of pre-existing material. Let that blow your mind. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, the invisible and the visible alike, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. That's a sweeping statement. Why does it matter that God created the universe without the use of pre-existing material, you might ask? Well, if the material elements were there with God in the very beginning, then you have two ultimate eternal forces in the universe, God and matter. This is, this is the philosophical worldview known as dualism, okay? It's, it's the idea that uh, two uh, beings or things have existed since eternity passed alongside one another. The problem with dualism is it presents an eternal conflict between God and the evil aspects of the material world. It leaves us wondering, who's going to emerge victorious in the end? Will it really be God? Or will it be eternal matter, uh, even in its evil state? Not only that, dualism denies God's lordship over creation. If God didn't create the material world as we know it, then, then there's no submission to his authority. He, he has no right to demand that kind of submission. He has no jurisdiction over his creation whatsoever at that point. You go, who cares about that? Well, most New Age religion that exists in the world is dualistic, which is a growing demographic in our culture. You may not feel that today but you will feel it very soon. Theology matters. I'm not, I'm not looking to throw out big theological words to sound intelligent. That's not, that's not what I'm after. But our theological beliefs impact our very lives and they impact our mission. If they don't today, they will soon enough. Okay, so, so we wanna be educated in these things so that we can then step out on the mission field as good missionaries for the glory of God. Okay, so God creates out of nothing, and then he begins to shape, like a, like a potter with his clay, the, the uh, habitable world. It wasn't so habitable in the beginning, but God begins to um, take on his artistic work, and we see that in verses 3 through 25 as God sets the stage. All right, exercise some patience with me this morning. Let's read from verses 3 through 25 together. It says this, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let, 
The waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seeds uh, uh, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, uh, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them uh, be lights in the expanses of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the lesser light to rule the day, uh, excuse me, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, above the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas. And let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All right. A few things that I think are critical to get out of this. But before I say that, let me first drive at what I don't think is the ultimate point of verses 3 through 25, okay? I don't think that the ultimate point of verses 3 through 25 is to fuel the nitpicking of secondary theological matters regarding the doctrine of creation. Is it important that we study those things? Is it important that we study for ourselves as Christians um, to come to some conclusions uh, as it pertains to the things that God uh, create space for us to come to conclusions about rather than leaving them as a mystery? Absolutely. So study those things for yourself. If you want to grab coffee and have a super nerdy conversation about the gap theory of creation, the literary framework view, theistic evolution, historic creationism, uh, the day-age view of creation, the, the literal 24-hour day interpretation of creation. We can talk about all that stuff. We can go have that super nerdy cup of coffee together, and I'm happy to, to engage that stuff with you because I do think it's critical that we study those things. But uh, I don't think that's the ultimate here. And in fact, I think when we make that the ultimate, we rob ourselves of seeing some really sweet things in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis that God intends for us to see as he is setting the stage for this divine, redemptive, historical drama and calling us into it. So let's take a look at a few glorious truths that I think we're meant to see in verses 3 through 25. Number one, God is working to set the stage for this divine, redemptive, historical drama. That in verses 3 through 25, he, he's taking that which is formless and he's shaping it into a theater. 
Okay, from the division of light and darkness on day one to the division of waters above the sky and waters below the sky on day two to the division of the land from the waters on day three along along with the forming of plant life. On the fourth day, God brings in the stage lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the fifth day, the creatures that inhabit the skies and the waters. And on the sixth day, the creatures that inhabit the land. Do, Do you see it? Do you see what God is doing here? He's shaping his unformed creation into a glorious stage that would make the Fox Theater look sad and pathetic. It's pretty incredible. It's on this very stage that man will dwell with God. It's on this very stage that man will rebel against God. We'll get there in a couple weeks. It's on this very stage that God is setting that all the Old Testament shadows that point to Jesus will be established. It's on this very stage that Jesus will take on human flesh. That's crazy to think about, right? He's the one creating the stage right now as we we speak in Genesis 1. It's on this very stage that God will die in the place of sinners. It's on this very stage that the church will be established And it's on this very stage that God is creating in Genesis 1 that Jesus will return and make everything sad untrue. That's unbelievable. God is creating his theater in Genesis 1. He's setting the stage for the the divine, redemptive, historical drama that's about to unfold. You and I are now part of that drama. We're characters in the part of the play known as the New Testament church era. That time of the already and the not yet. Already the kingdom of God has come in Christ Jesus and yet not yet fully as it will be when he returns to set all things right. How, how incredible is that? When you think about it from that perspective, how, how incredible, how crazy is it that you and I get to breathe the air of the theater of God together? That'll change the way that you look at a tree on the parkway on your drive home, won't it? Secondly, God is setting his stage by authoritative decree. This is how it's happening. Genesis 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's what uh, theologians refer to as creation by fiat. Fiat meaning God decreed that the stage of this divine drama would be set, and it was by virtue of his authoritative decree. How did God bring the elements together that make up this glorious divine Cosmic theater, answer, he spoke. He, he just spoke and things came into being. God said, let there be light, and light was like, you got it. I don't really have a say-so in the matter. I will now exist. And, and everything else that came into being in Genesis 1 responded the same way. That's your God, Christian. And here's the deal. The same authoritative word that brought the world into existence is the same word that sustains it this very day. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That your life, my life too, hangs in the balance moment by moment. You're not in control. It's, it's delusional to think that we're ultimately in control. The difference between life and death for you and for me is God's authoritative word, which spoke creation into existence. Al Walters in his book, Creation Regained, says it this way. He says, 
From day to day, every detail of our creaturely existence, the very hairs on our head, continues to be constituted by the let there be's of the sovereign will of the creator. Whether you agree with this premise or not, it doesn't make it any less true that if God says, let there be death, you're dead. So am I. If God continues to say, let there be life, you live. You and I are completely dependent upon God for life and breath and everything, as Acts chapter 17 so eloquently lays it out. The doctrine of creation, as well as the doctrine of providence, God holding everything together by the word of his power, demands praise of the creator. There's an ethic attached to that. There's an ought to attached to the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of providence. That's what Psalm 104, Psalm 19, and a number of other passages of scripture are driving at. J.I. Packer says it this way, really helpful quote. He says, realizing our moment-by-moment dependence on God, the creator, for our very existence makes it appropriate to live lives of devotion, commitment, gratitude, and loyalty towards him, and scandalous not to. Godliness starts here with God, the sovereign creator, as the first focus of our thoughts. Number three. I love this one. This is why it's so critical not to just slap verses on coffee cups and not explain them in context. Number three, God is showing in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 25, that other so-called gods are no gods at all. Moses, historically, is writing the book of Genesis in the wake of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. The Israelites had been immersed in this ancient Near Eastern religion uh, in the midst of the Egyptians, this ancient Near Eastern view of the gods and of creation. And according to that view, the sea was worshipped by many as divine. Genesis 1 is a declaration that the sea is no deity at all. Right? The sea is a part of God's creation, part of the stage that's meant to display his splendor and glory. Similarly, heavenly bodies were worshipped by many in the ancient Near East. And that kind of thinking lives on. Thanks to the Romans, today is Sun's Day. Tomorrow will be Moon's Day. Yesterday was Saturn's Day. Right? That's, that's where the days of the week found their, their names. Genesis 1 is the declaration that heavenly bodies are not to be worshipped. They're part of God's creation. Without God's let there be, there would be no sun. There would be no moon. There would be no stars. There would be no stage lights in this divine, redemptive, historical drama. A little bit of bonus material. I'll give you this one for free. One of the great gods of Egyptian worship was Ra, the sun god. Notice that God doesn't even bring forth the sun until day four. The sun can't even claim to be first among created things. This is a a massive display of God's sovereignty. He's saying, I cannot be rivaled. Those other so-called gods are no gods at all. He's showing this to the Israelites and he's showing it to us in his kindness. Genesis 1, verses 3 through 25 are God's way of flexing. And notice how easy it is for him to do it. He does so with something as simple as a breath. And now... The stage is set for the entrance of man into this divine drama. Pick up the story with me in verse 26. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it, it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God creates and shapes his glorious, cosmic, divine theater with the art of a craftsman, And now humanity steps onto the stage. I think we take it for granted. I said this before. We've read through Genesis 1, many of us, so many times that we just begin to take for granted the beauty and wonder of the fact that God creates this divine theater. And he does so with stage lights that don't hang from a ceiling but from outer space. All of the domains of creation, all of the diverse creatures that inhabit those domains. If you'd never read this book before, you'd swear you were right in the, in, in the midst of some C.S. Lewis fiction novel. And then, man. Welcome to the stage, human beings. As Indy Wilson says so eloquently, you're on a rock mostly molten lava being flung around a ball of fire in the sky going Mach 86. And God doesn't have a good uh, imagination? Yeah, right. That's unbelievable. That's your stage. Man enters God's divine drama, and, and immediately we learn something about ourselves as characters in this story. As, as we work our way to a close this morning, I'll just briefly mention a few things, and we'll dive deeper into each of these things next week when we get to chapter 2 and look at uh, the, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of the imago Dei, being created in the image of God and what that means. Let me just run through a few things here as we look at man's entrance onto the stage of this divine drama as we move toward a close this morning. Number one, God created man for his own glory and good pleasure, not out of a sense of need. We talked about that last week. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's not a divine Jerry Maguire. We don't complete him. He's perfectly complete in himself. Number two, God created man in his own image after his likeness. We see that in verses 26 and 27. Being created in the image of God has a lot of implications for us. But for this week, suffice it to say that you and I are created with dignity because we're not on the same level with animals. And yet we're created with humility because we're not on the same level with God. We're image bearers of the eternal God, dignity, and we're not eternal God, humility. See, most people's understanding of of themselves as characters in the story tends to be uh, an erring in one direction or the other. 
uh, an emphasis on dignity at the expense of depravity and humility or an emphasis on depravity and humility at, at the expense of dignity. Both of those matter, and both of those we see from the very beginning of the story. Number three, God created man as male and female. Verse 27, we see male and female, he created them. That men and women are equally God's image bearers, equal in dignity, value, worth. Yet gender distinction is a part of God's good creation. That woman is God's beautiful design of femininity, and man is God's beautiful design of masculinity. This verse is a gut punch to the cultural belief that anything goes in terms of gender identity. More to come next week, if that perks your interest. Number four, God commands man to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. We see that in verse 26. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We see it again in verse 28 where God says, subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That part of our exercising dominion over the rest of creation is our call to meaningful work and culture making. If you have an innate drive to work hard, that stems from God's command in Genesis 1. If you delight in creativity, that stems from God's command in Genesis 1 in the very beginning. God makes creation and he gives human beings the great privilege of taking what he's created and making culture with what he's created. In fact, in doing so, you mirror God's invisible attributes to the world, as Calvin says. That there's a reason that we, we love film and fashion, music, storytelling, architecture, dance, and so forth and so on. And there's a reason that we delight in the created work of others. Part of my enjoyment of the songs that James and Nathan create is that those songs mirror God's creativity. Again, more to come next week. Number five. God commands man to reproduce and fill the earth. In other words, I want you to make a lot of babies. That's fun. To be clear, we don't view children as a nuisance around here as a church. Children are not a hindrance to our personal goals and dreams as a church. Children are a gift from God that honors the command found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We are happy to see many kids do laps around this very auditorium week in and week out. Lastly, and again, we'll dive into all this in more detail next week. Number six, God originally creates man as sinless. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, that Fickle human hearts were not always part of the story. Bondage to sin wasn't always part of the story. Suffering, sickness, and death weren't always part of the story. In the beginning, there was no sin. There was no suffering. There was no sickness. There was no death. God declared the creation of man not only to be good, but to be what? Very good. And this isn't the only time we see these words in chapter 1. Six times in verses 3 through 25, as God is forming his theater, we're told, 
And God saw that the light was good. And God saw that it 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 was good. You think God's trying to communicate something to his people. Translation, everything sad was untrue. That's clearly not the world that we live in, right? We live in a world filled with sin, suffering, pain, brokenness, death. But here's the good news. The God of creation is also the God of recreation. If you're a Christian, here's how you became one. Here's how anyone becomes a Christian. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, which says this. For God, who said, does this sound familiar? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That the God who in the beginning said, let there be light, said the same thing to your darkened, sinful heart. You didn't do anything. God said, let there be light, and the scales fell away from your eyes, and you saw Jesus for who he truly is. That's how anyone is converted. If you're not a Christian, that's my prayer for you right now. That you'd come face to face with your creator and your sin. That you come face to face with the fact that it's an exercise in futility to attempt to restore yourself to God. That you'd come face to face with the fact that God, knowing you couldn't get to him, came to you. He entered into the stage that he created in the very beginning. That you'd see that Jesus lived the life that you could never live. That you'd see that Jesus died the death that you deserve to die. That you would see that Jesus was punished in your place as your sins were put upon him. That you would see that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. That you would see that he is the only hope for recreation. My prayer, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, is that God would declare to your heart, let there be light. And like light in the creation story, your heart would go, you got it. I don't really have a choice in the matter. I will now come alive. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And as we prepare to do that, which we do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. As you prepare to come and and participate in communion uh, as the church, I would invite you to just spend some time marveling at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. That, that God shone light onto our darkened hearts in our state of hopelessness. We couldn't claw our way back to God. People in the Bible Belt try to do it every day. We're surrounded by it. This, this works-based thing that's going on as people check their boxes. Do this, do this, do this, got it. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, got it. I don't see how anyone sleeps well with that kind of worldview. Because you have to ask the question constantly, have I gotten there? How good is good enough? How do I know? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus not only did all the heavy lifting, he did all the lifting. And we can marvel at him this morning as we prepare to come take communion and celebrate 
his life, death, and resurrection so that we might have hope, so that we might be recreated people in the midst of his creation and play a part in, in this divine redemptive historical drama that he invites us to participate in now as characters in this story to bring about redemption in the lives of others around us both in the church and outside the church thanks for listening if you have any questions about this message visit us at crosspointptc.com there you can contact us Find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.